are good and faithful. You keep us day and night. We can always run to you, Jesus. Jesus, you are strong and kind. Dear Lord, I thank you for that. Uh, I thank you for you being so tender to us, Lord. Um, I thank you uh, for the love that you show us unconditionally, Lord. I just pray that we remember these words, um, that you are tender, Lord, you are strong, and you are kind as well, Lord. And I just pray as Pastor Aaron brings the message today that we would um, listen to the ways that he is tender to us, Lord, um, and how to apply that, Lord, and just let um, your words speak through him. Amen. All right. You can go ahead and have a seat. And kids, you are free to go. Journey Kids. Packed house, Matt. Good luck. All right. Well, we will be in Matthew 11, 25 through 30, if you want to turn there. Uh, it is on page 5. 65 in the Bible in front of you. If you see the Bible, it's in the pouch in front of you. If you would like to use that one, go right ahead. If you would, uh, if you know someone who would like a Bible or needs one, take that and give it to them. Uh, we have plenty, and we would love to see God's word in as many hands as possible. So Matthew 11:25 through 30 is where we're going to be spending our time this morning. And again, that's on page 565. If that's help, if that's helpful to find it. Um, <laughs> We are almost at the end of this series we're calling Bigger. I've said this a few times throughout, but uh, my friend had a podcast for a couple of years that he called the 100 Foot Jesus Podcast. And he called it that because he said, how different would our day be if we woke up every morning to a 100 foot Jesus standing at the foot of our bed? If Jesus was big to me from the second out my eyes and throughout my day, would that change how I go about my day. That has been the objective of this series, is to elevate and make bigger our view of Jesus, to see him for what he is. We've talked about this often too, that we don't want to just magnify Jesus because that puts the onus on us. We get the magnifying glass, we look at Jesus, he looks bigger, we pull the magnifying glass away, and he's small again. That that's becomes a Sunday routine sometimes for us or a quiet time routine or a morning devotion routine. And again, those things are not bad. But if that's the only time we're looking at Jesus, that's the only time that Jesus is big to us, that puts the onus on us. We look at Jesus. He looks big to us in that moment. We put the magnifying glass away. We put the devotional book back and then we go on about our day. And Jesus is only big to us in those moments. The goal here was to look at the nature of Christ. Not just his characteristics. We didn't just want to look at like his mercy. We wanted to look at his, his tenderness. We wanted to look at his, his promises that, that he is going to return. That is the promise, by the way, that he hasn't delivered on yet. Now, Jesus has a track record throughout all of Scripture, Old and New Testament, of delivering on promises made. Last week, we looked at that. We looked at a returning Jesus. He hasn't returned yet. He hasn't delivered on that promise. So we are still living in a promise made. So did you do your homework this week? No, some of you are like, what? I had homework. Did you ponder at all this week what a life without sin, the reality of sin would look like? Did you find yourself pondering that at all throughout the week? 
What would it look like if you could just go one day, one day without struggling against sin? The frailty of life. The, the mind battle that we all have to go through. What would that be like? We, we, we talked about that last week. The challenge was to take some time this week to just try to process that. What would that look like for just one day? And when Jesus returns, that is our eternity. Our eternity is in his presence without sin. Sin isn't allowed in that space. I will no longer have to battle with it. It'll be completely 100% defeated and I will be with Jesus. That is in and of itself an amazing reality to focus in on. But we think about the return of Jesus. If we don't view it through the right lens, it can lead to confusion. And for some, it might even lead to fear. There's a famous story in my household growing up of my dad, the year he got married. When he got married, he had a motorcycle. That was my dad year round. That was his main mode of transportation. Even in the winter, he would, he would either buy like a $50 piece of junk car and keep it going through the winter, or he would ride his motorcycle. One such year, 1973, if I'm getting the year right in my head, my dad found a junk car to get him through the winter, and he decided that he was going to take his motorcycle apart and redo it during the winter. So he, they had lived in a, a split level, and the one room downstairs wasn't really being used, so my dad decided to use it for his motorcycle shop. Took his motorcycle inside and took, I'm not kidding, every piece off, every screw. The whole thing is just one big schematic laying on the floor in this room. And my dad took every piece and he cleaned it and he relubricated the pieces and he relubricated. And by the time winter was over, he had put the motorcycle back together and there were parts left over. <laughs> so my dad being my dad, and if you know my dad, this wouldn't surprise you at all. My dad thought, well, let's see if it starts. And it did. Well, let's see if it runs. And it did. So he just threw those parts in a box and figured someday if it broke, he would figure out it was one of those parts that it needed. And he rode the bike until he didn't ride it anymore, just without the pieces on it. He took every piece off, he cleaned it, he relubricated, and then he took what he needed to put back the bike, he put it back together. The problem was, like I said, there are parts left over. And he just used it that way. Here's why I tell you that. Because when we dismantle the nature of Jesus, the fleshly tendency is to only focus on the pieces that we like and the pieces that make us feel warm and fuzzy, and it keeps the thing running, so I don't have to focus on the ones that aren't there anymore. I can put them in a box, I can set them on the shelf, and those are the attributes and the parts of Jesus' nature that I don't have to think about. I don't have to focus on because I don't like how they make me feel, so I don't think about them. I don't ask questions about them. If that comes up in my devotional book that I'm going through, I skip that day. The problem is there's something missing. And if it's not a whole Christ, we rob ourselves of knowing a full Christ. The joy of knowing Him in His fullness. Can you even imagine the creator of the universe makes himself available to us in his fullness. Moses begged for just a glimpse, just a glimpse. And what he was allowed to see from the cleft of a rock as it passed by now indwells us because of Jesus. 
Isn't that mind-blowing? If it's not, we need to talk. Seriously, have some time this week. Let's get a cup of coffee. Let's talk about that. That is a mind-blowing reality, church. So if we focus on expanding our view of Jesus, as we focus on that, today we want to look at a part of his nature that should really, really floor us. It should really give us this deep sense of awe and wonder because today we want to look at his tender nature. If you were to describe Jesus in one sentence, just one sentence, what would it be? Not one of those long, fancy, run-on sentences. My wife's a language arts major. She could fabricate a heck of a long sentence, and it would be chock full of proper punctuation and all of it, right? I'm not talking one of those. I'm talking like a common, everyday man, like Adam Johnson sentence. How would you describe Jesus in one sentence? What would you say? What words would you use? If you've only got, let's say, five to seven words, what would you use? What would you say? In today's passage, we see Jesus describe himself in one sentence. And how he does it might surprise you. It sure does surprise the religious elite of the day, and it surprises the people who don't know Jesus yet, and it surprises those who do know him. So let's look at this together. Matthew eleven twenty five through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Did you catch it? I am gentle and lowly in heart. When I pray for the nature of Christ to consume me, I should have known what would happen today. I should have known that praying to be tender would make me want to cry the entire sermon. I'm not an easy crier. It takes a lot to get me there. But this week I have found myself praying to feel that, that tenderness of Jesus, and it has overwhelmed me several times that He would scoop me in. When Jesus in this passage describes Himself, He says, I am gentle and lowly. The creator of the universe. The one who spoke a storm to be still and in an instant it listened. The seas obeyed his voice and the clouds parted and the blue sky returned in an instant at the sound of this man's voice. And this is how he describes himself. Gentle and lowly. The creator of the universe 
highlights his own tenderness. When given a chance to describe himself, he highlights his tenderness. He highlights his tender nature. Are you tired? I can give you rest. And when he says that, he's not saying like sleepy tired. You know what I'm talking about? Anyone know that difference between sleepy and tired? Jesus says, I do too. I can give you rest. Are you weary? I can give you rest. Are you wondering? I will take you in. Are you doubting? I can handle that. And the list goes on and on and on. Dane Ortland, we're, by the way, real quick, uh, we, we got the idea for this bigger sermon series by reading a book together at the leadership team level. We're, we're reading a book called Deeper. We're studying it together. We're not through it yet. This last chapter, we decided to take a whole month on. We talk about it for about 45 minutes at every one of our meetings before we ever talk about an agenda. Matter of fact, sometimes we have like 10 minutes left in our meeting and we're like, oh, we didn't look at the agenda yet. I love our meetings, by the way, and I have never said that about church meetings. <laughs> he wrote this book called Deeper as a follow-up to one that he wrote that I want you to, if you're a note taker, if you have a phone or if you have a pen and you don't, if you've never read this book or heard of it, I will buy it for you. I will order it this afternoon and I will send it to your house. It's called Gentle and Lowly and it is all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus coming into your story and being willing to step into your life and wanting that, desiring that. What does that mean for you? Gentle and lowly. Order it. Actually, I wouldn't even be offended if you opened the Amazon app and ordered it right now. I'll just tell a silly story in between so that you don't miss anything. No, I'm just kidding. In the book, in this book deeper though, Dane Ortland says this, and when he's speaking about the tenderness of Jesus, he says this, our deepest loves and desires and ambitions pour out of our hearts. And when Jesus opens himself up and tells us of the fountain, the engine, the throbbing core of all that he does, he says that deeper than anything else, he is gentle and lowly peer down into the deepest recesses of Jesus Christ and there we find gentleness and lowliness peer down into the deepest recesses of Christ and what will we find gentleness lowliness I love that imagery the fountain the engine the throbbing core of all that he does he says that deeper than anything else, he is gentle and lowly. So let's take a minute and look at this whole passage together. If we just look at this passage without context, we might wonder why in the world Matthew chooses to write it like this. Now, Matthew is one of the most detailed writers of telling a story that we have in the New Testament. 
Matthew doesn't skimp on the details, so he makes it rather easy for us in a moment like this to say, what is Jesus referring to when it says, at that time, Jesus declared, why would it start that way? Well, let's look back and see. At the beginning of chapter 11, uh, messengers come from John the Baptist, who is in prison, and they send uh, messengers to Jesus. He is in prison, John the Baptist is, it's Jesus' cousin. And, and he was the forerunner. He was the one that prepared the way, made straight a path through the desert, the highway for God. And he's having a moment. He's sitting in prison and he's frightful and he needs reassured. Please go see my cousin. Please have him tell me this is it. He's the one. I just need to be reminded, please, are you the Messiah? I need reassured. That's his posturing here. So Jesus goes on uh, a a talk to reassure. He answers the question publicly, by the way, knowing the messengers will get the message back to John. But in in answering it publicly, he's able to make a claim about himself and also elevate the person and the work of John the Baptist a little bit. After he goes through that, he does something a little interesting. He gives some condemning statements about some of the cities in which he has done some work. You'll see that in verses 20 through 24. He mentions them by name. He says, woe to you on several different passages or de- several different places here. Th- these, were the cro- these were the places where he's instructing the crowd on the reality that what drew them toward John wasn't him. It was who he pointed them to. He's helping people understand that the thing that drew them, if you followed John, he's saying to the crowd, if you followed my cousin and my cousin pointed you to something bigger than yourself, know that it wasn't him you were following. He was always pointing you to me. But then he goes on this, on to denounce several cities where most of his mighty work, it says, Matthew calls it his mighty works had been on display, and, and, but there wasn't repentance that happened in those places. He, he starts off the section praising the, the Father that the wisdom of the Lord is not given because we make ourselves more educated or important in the world's eyes. That's what he's saying at the front end of this, starting at verse 25. After he makes his case against these cities, he's saying that the religious elites of the day, the unrepentant cities that Jesus is referring to, they're the places where this religious elite didn't give him their attention because he was just a poor carpenter. What do you have to teach me? I have been in religious education since the day I was born. And this poor, homeless carpenter comes into town with some kind of radical message. And you think you have something to teach me? Matter of fact, I'm going to make sure that I get as many people to not listen to you. I'm going to discredit you as often as possible. How dare you come into my city? And preach a message contrary to what I've been teaching. I know the Bible better than anyone. 
That is the posturing. Their posture was one of pride, which really blocked their ability to hear his words. Their, their pride and their identity being built in the wrong things blocked their ability to hear him. He wasn't coming in guns blazing. Remember, he's gentle and lowly. Now, there are times when we've seen Jesus not be exactly gentle and lowly in a moment. And it was always those moments were always reserved for religious people, by the way. So Jesus doesn't seem to have a whole lot of space for religious elitism to have any breathing room. He does not want it to have room to grow. He seems to have a posture where he accepts the reality that it will always be there, but he doesn't have to encourage it, he doesn't have to support it, and he doesn't have to endorse it. He's not going to play the game. Jesus is not a people pleaser. Jesus is not coming in and asking a question, how can I say this message in a way that it appeases everyone in the room? No. Jesus goes into the setting knowing full well there will be a whole contingent of people that are going to be upset with what he says, and their being upset will lead to straight-up anger. That anger will lead to straight-up rage, and that rage will lead to murder. And he will be the recipient of all of it. And he knows that. And he still doesn't stop. So Jesus says that we should come to him, not like those Pharisees, not like the religious elites that didn't want to hear. He says that we should come to him like children. Now, I'm learning more and more every day to be careful with what I say to my kids because they trust me. Yesterday, we were at Belmar. We went to a little beach on the bay this time, and uh, Toby found a, a hermit crab. And he asked if we could keep it. And of course, Megan and I were like, no, you cannot keep the hermit crab. And Isaiah says, well, that's not, that wouldn't survive out of water anyway. There's two different kinds of hermit crabs. And I was like, no, there's not. And he's like, you're the one that told me that. I had to eat some humble pie, and I told him, I was like, I probably did tell you that so that I, could exp so I didn't have to take a hermit crab home last time we found one. <laughs> That's on me, son. I'm sorry. <laughs> they believe what I tell them. They come to me fully expecting to be told the truth. And the fact that I am their dad is all the criteria they need to believe what I'm saying. That's it. They don't ask for a resume. They don't ask for my credentials. They don't ask where I went to college. They don't say, how long have you been doing this old pastor thing? How old are you anyway? No, the only criteria my kids need to believe what I'm saying to them is that I'm their dad. That's it. Now, who has to carry the responsibility in that relationship most. Is it them coming to me and trusting me because I'm their dad? Or is it me, the one who's about to voice words to them that they're going to take as truth? It's me. And Jesus says, you can trust me with that because I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come to me like a child. Trust me because I'm your dad. 
I know what's best for you. And when I say something, you can trust it. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is not an abusive, bullying tone, is it? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, there's a couple things here as we exegete this, and I, I could legitimately spend 40 more minutes just talking about this part of the passage, but I'm not going to. I just want to highlight the tenderness of Christ. But for that to get a full picture, we do have to break this down a little bit. We do have to look at this a little bit tighter. Look at the words that he's using. He's saying things like, you can come to me all, 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 all. There's no caveats here. This, he's already shot across the bow at religious elitism. Come to me all. All. All you need to come to Jesus and be accepted and received by him is to be able to draw breath into your lungs. That's it. And then he gives the other piece of this. In case, you, in case you and I didn't catch it the first time when he says, come to me all, he says it again, all who labor and are heavy laden. And then he gives us this promise. And I will give you rest. Now, what might have sounded like a paradox to the listener of the first century as he's speaking this is when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, I, just for the sake of not letting that language get lost, the yoke was a piece of wood that was curved and had two indentations on it, and you would lay it on the back of an ox, a pair of oxen that would do the plowing in the field. And most of the time you had an older, more mature ox that was stronger and more muscular, and you had maybe the younger one or the misfit that didn't want to listen or the stubborn one, and you would link them together under the same yoke. And the older, more mature, more muscular ox would be able to do the work while the other one walked alongside it and learned how to plow. But who carried the bulk of the load? The more mature, muscular, seasoned ox. That's the language that he's using. He says, you can do that with me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It's a farming analogy. That's when he tells us that he's gentle and lowly in heart. I'm the savior of the universe. You haven't seen me do that yet, but I will. I am the Messiah. John gets it. His followers are starting to follow me. It's starting to happen. This plan is unfolding. At the time this is being written and recorded, the time these events are happening, it's pre the crucifixion. So Jesus hasn't fulfilled that promise yet. 
But as he's speaking to the listener, he's saying, I have claimed to be the Son of God. You have heard the voice coming out of the sky. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And he's saying, you can take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. I will not fight you. I will not buck you. I will not be uh, upset that I have to do all this work, and you're just the lazy, stubborn, younger one that I have to do the work for. That is not his posturing. Because he says, once we get yoked to him, what will we find in our work even? We'll find rest. Rest for our souls. That's the deepest rest you could ever find, by the way. Rest for your soul. That's better than a deep breath. That's better than a hammock on the beach. That is, that is a rest that emanates through every part of your being. And then he ends by saying, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He's saying that this is not a burden for you to take upon yourself. Is there work to do? Is there plowing, quote unquote, to get done? Yes. But this is not shame inducing. This is not you being strapped to the perfect brother so that everyone can see how awful you are in comparison. Shame is not a tool that our Savior ever uses to get your attention. That's a tool of the evil one. This is not a burden. It's not a burden for him. It's not a burden for you. And I think that's important to notice. You see, when we read that passage, we can tend to only focus on the fact that it's not a burden for you. You get strapped into the same yoke as Jesus, and then you don't have to carry the burden of sin. And that is true. Because he's going to carry it to the cross. He did that for us. We're on this side of history, so we see it through a different lens than the people that were hearing it right then in this moment. That's true. But do you realize you are not a burden to your king? You are not an annoying kid coming to Jesus with a constant barrage of questions. He says, come to me like children. But then he says, you are not a burden. When that switch gets flipped and we stop giving over to the shame of feeling like we're a burden to our king, we start to see him for who he really is. And that's when the joy comes in and it stays. There's a couple of things I give as takeaways here. I have three of them today. I could give you 50, I think, but I'm only going to go to three. Here's the first one. Don't dilute Jesus. There's another famous family story that goes around our household. Uh, when Isaiah was little and we started giving him juice, Meg was famous for giving him like this much juice and this much water. The kid didn't know what apple juice tasted like. And as he got older, I think sometimes she was feeling generous. She'd give a little bit more. You know, she was like a really, really chintzy bartender, right? <laughs> really heavy on the water. And one time we were with my parents and Isaiah asked for juice and my mom gave him just straight up apple juice. And he took a drink and his face lit up and he went, oh, Grammy, that's a good juice. <laughs> the first time in his entire life. His juice wasn't diluted, and he got to take in the full flavor. 
And it, it made an indelible mark on him. From that point forward, watered-down juice was vastly insufficient. Thank you, Grammy. That's a good juice. Jesus' full nature is available to us. Not a diluted down, watered down one. Not one that you raise your hand and get a, a, a get out of hell free card and then you just go on about your life. That's not a full Jesus. Also being fearful of aspects of Jesus' nature is not a full Jesus. Don't trim him down to just the ones you appreciate or become fearful of the ones you don't understand. That's what the religious elite did, and they still do, and it doesn't exactly please Jesus when it's done. A full Christ fills you. It's all you need. It satisfies. And it's better. Jesus is better. Don't dilute Jesus. Two. Coming to Jesus like a child leads to rest. Now, as a parent, that's hard paradox. I put myself in the feet of in the seat of Jesus, and when kids come to me with a barrage of questions or doubts, and I'm walking them through that, I get exhausted. Why? Well, because I'm not Jesus. But he says, You come to me like that, and you will find rest. Anyone here need rest? You trust him with that? Like, get the picture of Jesus being willing to draw you up into his lap and hold you, no matter how ridiculous you've been, no matter how big your tantrum was, or how disobedient you've been, or how loud the screams were, or how much of a scene you just did in public. He's not embarrassed of you. He's not ashamed of you. And he's not disappointed in you. No, he says, come to me. You're tired. Get up on my lap. I'm going to draw you and I'm going to hold you like a baby lamb. And I will give you what you really need. And that's rest at the soul level that you can only get from me. Do you trust him enough to curl up in his lap and just be your unguarded self with him? Which leads to our third takeaway. Jesus' yoke is easy because he did, is doing all the heavy lifting. Jesus' yoke is easy because he already did and he is continuing to do all the heavy lifting. The Pharisees and the religious elite of the day made holiness, quote unquote, a difficult burden. They actually made it an impossible task. And they elevated themselves over people. They created an atmosphere where you needed them or you could never be holy. You needed them to lead you, to protect you, to guide you. There's a pastor in my life at one point. I was really struggling. I was in a room full of other pastors. We were struggling with his demeanor towards us. I had the resignation letter written. I just wasn't sure I could actually have the bravery of handing it in. I didn't know what was next until he stood up at a meeting and he said this quote, and I'll never forget it. 
stood at the end of a table and he slammed his fist down and he said, you guys don't understand how much you need me here to lead you because you're all so inexperienced at ministry. Threat quote. And I remember thinking, I'm done. I don't need you. And a lot of other ugly thoughts that came through my mind. That church is called... Spiritual abuse. Someone convincing you that they can lead you to God better than you can find God on your own. That, that you can't have access to God without them. You can never become who Christ desires you to be without them. And then they can manipulate you to get you to do things that you would never have done and it's shame-inducing and horrible and horrific, and we all know the stories that have been told out of that. That's not Jesus' yoke. See, the Pharisees and the religious elites of then and now, they make following Jesus, they make holiness a burdensome task. An impossible one. But Jesus is saying, that's not how it's supposed to be. I carried the burden of your sin. That person who's convincing you of something other than that never did that, nor could they do that. I did that. Come to me like a child and you can trust me. People who carry the moniker of Jesus have made it harder to trust Jesus because they've claimed to be him and other people's lives. And it's led to disastrous fallout. Jesus' yoke is easy. In the Psalms, David recognizes this reality. He looks at the world around him. He looks at all the troubles that he's dealing with, and he's being very honest about it. He's very upset. And he says this word, these words. He says, When I considered all of these things, it felt to me like a burdensome task. And if that's where the psalm ended, it would be one of the most depressing passages in Scripture. But David goes on to say this line, Until I stepped into the sanctuary of the Lord. Until I stepped into the safe place of my Lord. Until I stepped into the covering of my Lord. Until I stepped into or sat on the lap of my Lord. The rest of the psalm is a beautiful, beautiful 180. You see the whole process play out. Jesus' yoke is easy because he did all the heavy lifting. He is doing all the heavy lifting, he is tender, he is gentle, he is lowly. That is his nature, church. You don't have to hide from that. What kind of kid hides from that kind of dad? Even when we're scared, even when Satan has us convinced that we have to hide under the bed because what we did is absolutely unforgivable. We have to run. We have to hide. Jesus says, no, come to me in that moment. For I'm gentle and lowly. He says in Isaiah that I will bring you in and carry you like a lamb. You don't have to run from him. 
need to run to him. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up as we close. I'm going to close with a song that talks about the goodness of Jesus. The line in it says, The goodness of Jesus satisfied, deeply satisfied. He is all that I need. Do you find that to be true of your relationship with Jesus this morning? That you have found yourself running to him, being scooped up on his lap and letting you hold you, letting him hold you tenderly? Let's pray. God, may we be satisfied. May you be all that we need, the goodness of Jesus. What an amazing reality and truth that you tenderly come down to where we're at. You walked the paths of this world. You dealt with the temptation of sin, yet you never gave into it. You died a death that none of us could die to earn us a life that we could never earn ourselves. We can come to you. We can know you. We can be tenderly loved by you. So God, may you help us to do that. And I pray that we have seen you a little clearer today. In your name, amen. Would you stand and sing, please?